Well, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're going to be discussing the reauthorization of the Patriot Act. And uh, we have a, a great panel here, and I'm just going to turn things over to, uh, to our first speaker after just a, a very brief introduction. Uh, our first speaker is, is uh, in some ways, the guest of honor today, since he has just authored a brand new study that's literally hot off the press. It's leashing, leashing the surveillance state. And this paper is available, as hopefully you all discovered, on the registration table outside. If you didn't pick it up on the way in, please do so on the way out. It's also, of course, available in its entirety on our website, cato.org. Uh, Julian, is a, he's a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, prior to joining us, he was the Washington editor for the technology news site uh, Ars Technica. Uh, there he covered uh, surveillance, intellectual, pro intellectual property, and telecom policy. He also previously worked for the Reason magazine, an excellent libertarian publication, and he's still a uh, contributing editor there. And with that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Julian. Thanks, and... Uh Thank you all for coming out today. Um, as we look back on the history of uh, American civil liberties in wartime, oh, we see a record not of, of perfection, but of an impressive capacity for correction. So as we look back, uh, there are a number of instances where we find unfortunate cases of uh, overreaction, legislative overreaction in times of national peril. We think of the Alien and Sedition Acts at the uh, end of the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, of the internment of the Japanese uh, during World War II, or of the uh, in, uh, infiltration of domestic dissident groups during the Vietnam era. Uh, and in each of these cases, while we might lament what in hindsight look like overreactions that unnecessarily compromise civil liberties, we can also take some heart that uh, we have shown a consistent pattern of holding in such high esteem uh, the individual liberties that have made uh, themselves the, the basis of the republic, that uh, the powers granted to government uh, in moments of fear are typically rolled back. Uh, the war on terror is a little bit different uh, in a number of, of obvious ways, but one of them is that this is a conflict without a clear end date, without clear victory conditions. Osama bin Laden is mercifully uh, no more, uh, but you can't kill uh, a, a violence uh, twisted ideology. You can't guarantee that there will not be a, there will, uh, there will be a time when there are no longer uh, foreign groups who, who wish to harm American citizens uh, and visit terror on our shores. Uh, and so it, I think in this case, perhaps more even than in those previous ones, behooves us to force ourselves to stop periodically, to review what we've done, and to see whether uh, we can strike a more careful balance between the need to provide investigators with the tools that will allow them to keep us safe uh, and the civil liberties we cherish. Uh, so I think now is as good a time as any, both because the... Uh, sort of 10th anniversary of the war on terror is fast approaching, but even faster approaching is uh, the deadline for the renewal of three controversial provisions of the USA Patriot Act. Uh, the previous reauthorization period in 2006 already saw actually a number of improvements made to some of the uh, provisions of Patriot that went too far. Uh, these remain, um, and I think that with good reason, some of uh, the most controversial. And I want to take a quick look at each of them. They're dealt with in more detail in the paper that's out there. Um, but I want to consider each of them and discuss the, the issues that each of them present and how they can be modified in certain cases to, I think, resolve the concerns uh, people who are concerned about civil liberties have without unduly hampering investigators. 
Um, so the first of these is the lone wolf provision. Uh, this is the provision that was actually not part of Patriot, but part of the 2004 uh, Intelligence Improvement and Reform Act that allows the tools of FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, normally uh, used for uh, targeting for surveillance the agents of foreign powers, that is, foreign governments, intelligence agencies, but also increasingly now terror groups. The lone wolf provision uh, purported to close a gap in FISA by making it possible to use the tools of FISA against non-U.S. citizens who were believed to be planning uh, acts of terror, to, to be supporting or preparing for uh, acts of, of international terrorism. Um, now, the, the original impetus for this is actually the, the case of Zacharias Moussaoui. Uh, the claim was made at the time that he was missed in part because FISA was too restricted, that he, it was not clear enough that he was connectable to a known specific terror group, and, and therefore this left us uh, sort of uh, in the lurch, left us unable to do the kind of surveillance that might have uh, preempted 9-11. If you look at uh, a bipartisan Senate report that came out several years later, uh, that story doesn't hold up very well. It seems a lot more like what happened was that there was a failure to aggregate all the data that the FBI had, that uh, they had enough information if they had wanted to, to get a FISA warrant. And indeed on 9-11, uh, they used standard criminal authority to, uh, to, to get a search warrant to look through his laptop. But uh, it was a, a convenient, it's always sort of convenient for any government entity, whether in the intelligence community or otherwise, to say that a failure can be attributed to a lack of power. Um, and so we got the lone wolf provision. Uh, and yet, despite the claim that it closed an important gap, it has not been used in the decades since, including in the case of uh, the last year of, of Khalid uh, Aldasari, uh, actually earlier this year, uh, who is sort of the textbook definition of a lone wolf. We were able to apprehend him without invoking lone wolf. Uh, and so I think th this is the one of the, of the provisions I'm going to discuss that I think can safely be allowed to expire. Um, it is not as though we don't have ample tools to investigate and apprehend and deter uh, people, whether, you know, who, including people, domestic uh, groups, who are planning acts of violence. We have at numerous points in our history faced either groups like the whether underground or individuals like the Unabomber who, uh, you know, motivated by a twisted ideology, uh, planned acts of terror within the U.S. homeland. Uh, and the conventional tools of law enforcement are typically perfectly sufficient to deal with threats of this type. Uh, what the courts have always said is that the extent to which special needs present themselves in counter-terror cases, uh, they're usually linked to the existence of a connection to a foreign power. Foreign powers uh, you know, involve cases where you have networks of support that exist beyond the reach of U.S. law enforcement, involve cases where often an individual target who's within the U.S. Uh, may be uh, someone you want to monitor or turn rather than uh, seeking criminal prosecution, which is what the, uh, you know, our domestic law enforcement provisions are geared toward, um, may have abilities to flee, may have sophisticated counterintelligence training, may have a number of resources that complicate traditional criminal investigations. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that this is a distinction that the courts have always found to be constitutionally salient. That is to say, to the extent that the uh, protections of the Fourth Amendment are to some extent attenuated, to the extent that the executive has greater latitude 
in, uh, in foreign intelligence investigations. It is the extraordinary exigencies created by the involvement of foreign powers that justify this. Uh, actual lone wolves, that is people really without any connection to a foreign power, are in terms of those special needs, more or less indistinguishable from the domestic national security threats that the courts have always maintained don't justify departure from the, the normal protections that we afford. Um, so that's lone wolf. Uh, the second version is roving wiretaps. Uh, this is actually a, a case where the extent of disagreement is actually almost surprisingly narrow. Uh, in criminal investigations, roving wiretap authorities existed for, for several decades, and I think basically everybody agrees that roving authority should be available to intelligence investigators. Uh, roving authority uh, means that when uh, a target is believed to be engaging in counter-surveillance tactics, switching facilities, switching cell phones, switching email accounts in a way that would frustrate conventional facilities-based surveillance, that is, surveillance targeting a specific phone line or a specific internet account, that a, a roving warrant can be granted that will allow uh, investigators to follow that subject without having to go back to the court every time a new phone is acquired. Uh, but in the domestic context, in the criminal context, uh, it has always been the case that when, a when the surveillance is not limited to a known, specified, and advanced facility that the court has authorized interception on, uh, that the target needs to be identified specifically. Now, this isn't normally the case. Right? Normally, if you know a specific phone is being used or a specific location is being used in connection with criminal activity, it's enough for the warrant to specify the facility without necessarily naming the person who's believed to be using it. Um, when the warrant goes roving, in order to satisfy the Fourth Amendment requirement that warrants uh, you know, particularly describe the place to be searched or the person or things to be seized, that, those cases require that the warrant name a specific individual. Um, that requirement was not added to the roving wiretap provision in uh, the surveillance context. That is the roving wiretap provision that exists under FISA, creating the prospect of uh, what have been dubbed John Doe warrants. That is, warrants that neither specify uh, an individual facility nor specifically name uh, or identify the person who is to be surveilled. Uh, I think this actually creates a, a greater than usual risk of overcollection, that is a collection on the wrong party. Um, and so I think most civil libertarians would be totally satisfied, would be, I mean I'll speak for myself, all right with this provision being made permanent if it were modified to parallel the Title III criminal side authority. That is to say, uh, if the facility is, if a specific facility is not named, or if the warrant is not limited to a specific facility, then you need the identity of, of the, the target who is being followed from place to place. Um, now, of the couple thousand FISA warrants uh, for electronic surveillance that are issued every year, only about one or two percent per year are uh, roving, that is, involve roving authority. Um, probably, we don't know, most of those involve the named target. So the effect on uh, intelligence surveillance of this additional requirement would probably be fairly minor, but I think it would provide an important additional check on overcollection. Uh, I want to just use an offer an example here. A, a, a FOIA request um, from the Electronic Frontier, Frontier Foundation uh, unearthed a case a couple of years back in which that actually involved roving authority, although it was a named target, um, where the wrong line was accidentally targeted for surveillance. Uh, 
FISA surveillance is much broader already than criminal side surveillance. On the criminal side, uh, typically there's real-time minimization, meaning uh, the recording on the collective facility really only begins when you have uh, an ID on the target, and it seems like the, the, con the particular communication is relevant to whatever criminal offense is named in the warrant. Um, in this case, it was FISA, it's broader than that, uh, and so for about five days, um, there was interception done on this line, which appeared to be being used by a child um, who was not speaking the language they accepted, did not appear to be any of the targets they expected. And then finally, someone went back and, and noticed that the line being targeted had previously been registered to the parties named in the warrant, uh, but had been disconnected and then reissued to a new party. Um, and so the fact that there was that ability to check against the known identity meant that there was a capacity to correct. There was a capacity to, to identify the error and cease surveillance and eliminate the records that the, were improperly corrected. Um, and you know, more generally, having an identity is a kind of key to a whole universe of records that permit fairly robust error collection. And in the absence of that, uh, it's I think extraordinarily likely what you're going to find is overcollection that is not necessarily detected after the fact. Um, you know, one of the important differences between criminal and FISA surveillance is criminal side surveillance typically, uh, you know, in addition to the upfront minimization, involves after the fact notice to the targets and is usually geared toward criminal prosecution, which means you're going to have a kind of de facto after the fact check where. Uh, there's a defendant whose counsel have uh, rights to discovery, who have an incentive to monitor uh, the kind of surveillance that was done to look for improprieties. And in the FISA context, which again is typically covert, often does not involve ever disclosing to the targets that they've been under surveillance, um, you don't have that check. And the volume of surveillance makes it extraordinarily difficult to, in any kind of regularized institutional way, do that kind of after-the-fact monitoring. So in fiscal 2008, the FBI collected uh, about 100 years' worth of audio, uh, 1.6 million pages of text, and nearly 30 million electronic files. That's a, an incredible volume of surveillance, most of that uh, pursuant to FISA, uh, which it's just not realistic to expect robust after-the-fact review of, unless, again, in real time you have uh, uh, the, dimensional, the sort of multi-dimensionality that comes with an identified target to allow narrowing of the surveillance. Uh, next, I'll move very quickly to um, Section 215. This is the, the tangible things section. It allows uh, investigators to obtain, uh, with an order from the FISA court, uh, any tangible thing, mostly business records, but in principle, much broader than that, uh, that, that is believed to be relevant to the investigation. Uh, relevance is a fairly weak standard, uh, but in addition, uh, the statute includes a provision saying that uh, any records pertaining to either a suspected agent of a foreign power or a person uh, in communication with an agent of a foreign power are presumptively relevant. That is, the court must find such records to be relevant. Um, these have been used actually fairly sparingly, mostly because of, I think, the incredible breadth of national security letters, which I'll, I'll come to in a second. Um, we have seen a spike uh, just recently. They were not used at all for the first few years after the passage of the Patriot Act. Um, but it, just in, in 2010, uh, we saw a jump from 21 orders uh, in 2009 to 96 that year. Uh, and interestingly, nine, uh, of those 96, 43 were modified by the FISA court. Now, given the incredible breadth 
of that standard that is relevance with a broad presumption for a huge swath of categories of record, the fact that the FISA court found it necessary to modify nearly half of them suggests that the context in which these are being used uh, is, is broad in a way that may deserve further scrutiny. I would urge those of you who um, and uh, bosses may have uh, sort of access to classified briefings to inquire about this. Uh, in 2009, during the reauthorization debate, uh, Senator Russ Feingold suggested that he had become aware in his capacity uh, as a member of the Intelligence Committee of uh, what he regarded as uses of that authority. Uh, we also know that there is a sensitive collection program of some kind uh, that involves this in a crucial way. Um, again, the Inspector General reports to date do not suggest um, that this authority has been used in uh, a very aggressive way, but there are causes in the public record that's quite limited for concern, and the breadth and principle of that authority, I think, uh, opens up the potential for, for fishing expeditions in a way that would recommend narrowing that authority to records more directly linked to persons who are actually targets of an investigation. Uh, finally, national security letters, and again, the, the concern about 215 is, is to a great extent that um, if as one hopes, national security letters are reined in, there will be greater reliance on 215, which does at least require a judicial authorization. Um, so I think there's reason then to worry that there will be an increase in the use of that power uh, and that it will require additional oversight. Um, national security letters, I think, are interestingly one of the um, powers that were expanded by the Patriot Act and subsequent legislation that did not receive perhaps as much attention as they merited up front, um, but have since emerged as one of the more controversial uh, Patriot powers. These actually don't expire, uh, but again, because of the, the amazing growth in their use and also the uh, misuses of that authority that have already been cataloged by the Office of the Inspector General, I think it's important to use the occasion of uh, the reauthorization debate to revisit that authority. Uh, and just last year, we saw uh, actually a, a pretty profound spike in the use of national security letters. These permit uh, the acquisition of certain categories of telecommunications and financial records uh, by the FBI. That is, they can be issued by the head of any of the 56 uh, FBI field offices uh, without judicial approval. And uh, in, in 2010, uh, we saw an increase from just a bit over 14,000 to more than 24,000 national security letter requests. Uh, and perhaps most stunning, uh, 14,000 Americans, more than 14,000 Americans last year, had sensitive records seized. And that doesn't even count uh, people who only had what's called basic subscriber information obtained. So uh, basic subscriber information meaning whose account is this, uh, you know, what credit card is used to pay for it, where is their listed address. The records we're talking about are more detailed records, that is, lists of financial transactions or telecommunications records, including the phone numbers you've dialed, the people you've emailed, uh, the, web, the IP addresses that you've visited in, in browsing the web, uh, other kinds of transactional metadata that uh, subject to sophisticated forensic analysis can actually be incredibly, incredibly revealing. Uh, and these are uh, these kinds of metadata have again traditionally been subject to lesser standards uh, uh, for um, for being obtained either in, in a law enforcement or an intelligence context, but modern technology has made these records vastly more revealing. Uh, so you know a record of email lists you're on, people you're g-chatting with, uh, phone numbers you're calling have implications for. Uh, 
strongly protected rights of expressive association, that is membership in political groups, uh, with the right to speak anonymously, and equally importantly, to receive information uh, anonymously and without scrutiny. Uh, in particular, when you consider that broad investigations are extraordinarily likely to sweep in the activity of unpopular political groups that may not be violent, but, but uh, there may be some feeling that there's a need to check out to ensure that they're not connected to more violent groups. Um, and you know, there's basically been an admission by the Justice Department that the way these are used is, for the most part, to close down leads. That is, not to investigate people who are known to be terrorists, but to sweep very broadly, to look at what are called communities of interest, where uh, an individual target who comes under some suspicion has uh, a first-degree circle of associates whose records are in turn acquired, so that you can see not just who is that person emailing, who is that person talking to online or on the phone, but who are those people in communication with, in order to build a kind of social map, a kind of social graph. Um, this can be potentially quite useful, um, but it's important to bear in mind that that means, again, thousands of innocent people's records are acquired and then retained indefinitely in growing massive FBI databases. Um, one of these, the investigative data warehouse, now has uh, something like 13,000 with access to it. Uh, and if you sort of, just in the age of WikiLeaks, you know that even a classified database that has that volume of people with access to it can't be considered entirely secure. Um, and given the implications of those kinds of records for important expressive and associational interests, uh, I think we need to take a serious look at the breadth of that kind of investigation and return to something closer to what we had before Patriot, which was uh, a kind of bifurcated system where individuals who were suspected of being agents of foreign powers were subject to national security letters, their records could be obtained, uh, and then at the, at the second degree, that is, the persons they were in communication with, national security letters could be used to identify parties. That is, uh, you have a target, he's emailing people, he's calling people, you want to know who those people are. So the investigation can continue using the panoply of other tools that are available, but that without further suspicion, those people whose connection with the target of the investigation may be tenuous, casual, uh, don't have their full network of associations, their habits of internet browsing and reading uh, exposed and retained without some kind of additional reason to believe that there's, there's a need to investigate those parties. Um, I think it's pretty striking that Weeks after we learned Osama bin Laden had been killed, we got a report showing that many of these tools were being used at the highest rate ever, or in, you know, by some measure, more than ever. Uh, and we need to ask, are we responding in a way that's commensurate with the threat? Are we granting powers in a way that's narrowly tailored to permit uh, the use of, of modern technology and modern investigative techniques uh, to apprehend terrorists without unduly compromising the privacy of Americans engaged in protected political speech organization. And we need to also look at the size of the growing intelligence databases, look back to you know, the, the frankly unseemly kinds of intimidation of political groups that occurred before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, and recognize that once that information is locked into a database, we cannot have any guarantee of how 
a, few, you know, a, a year from now or 10 years from now, that data will be used in ways that well-intentioned people now did not intend or anticipate. Uh, so I want to urge everyone who's uh, going back to, to talk to someone who's thinking about how to vote on this not to consider these powers, uh, you know, anathema that need to be thrown out entirely because there is some value in many of them, but to ask how in, with, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of a decade's remove, to make them more narrowly tailored in a way that will serve those dual goals of keeping us safe, but also uh, protecting uh, you know, the most important kinds of private political organization and activity. Thanks. Thanks, Julian. Uh, next up, we have Mike German. He is a policy counsel at the ACLU here in Washington. Uh, he's also a former FBI agent. Uh, his, I knew he was an FBI agent going into this, but actually looking over his resume, he seems like a character that Tom Clancy might have dreamt up. Uh, he actually twice, uh, as an undercover agent, twice infiltrated uh, violent neo-Nazi groups here, uh, domestic terrorist groups, and was successful in winning convictions against several of these individuals. Uh, he's also spent time as a counterterrorism instructor at the FBI National Academy. He's currently an adjunct professor for law enforcement, uh, law enforcement and terrorism at the National Defense University, as well as a senior fellow with globalsecurity.org. Mike. Thank you, Brandon. And uh, thanks to Cato for inviting me uh, to come and, and speak on this important issue. And, uh, you know, I think the way Julian framed uh, the discussion uh, is particularly helpful and, and one to think about. I mean, one of the things that frustrated me in the FBI post 9-11 was that I worked terrorism on the criminal justice side and I found that the guidelines that that uh, limited my work actually made me more effective. It, it, it wasn't that they were obstructions that got in my way. They were actually good guidance that helped me focus on people who were actually doing harm. You know, when I would go out and, and uh, uh, begin these investigations, you know, there were a lot of people who were saying things that, that I didn't like, things that I even thought were, were dangerous. But if I didn't have some factual basis to believe they were actually doing something wrong, that they were actually involved in some sort of illegal conduct that the FBI could prosecute them for, uh, chasing them down and investigating them and recording what they were saying was really a waste of my time. And on the criminal justice side of the FBI, you know, the, the focus is on, on making prosecutions. You know, what I get measured on as, as an FBI agent on the criminal justice side is indictments, arrests, and convictions. So, you know, once we opened up this other side of the FBI, the, the foreign intelligence and international terrorism side, the tools they used, as, as Julian suggested, were much broader. They didn't need those specific focuses. They weren't looking for convictions. So you know, the, the scope of the information they would collect uh, was exceedingly broad, and that actually did not make them any more effective. And if you look at the 9-11 Commission report or the House Senate uh, Intelligence Committee investigation of 9-11, clearly the problem wasn't an inability to collect information. All these agencies, whether it was the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, all collected incredible amounts of information that could have been used. Uh, but again, they weren't focused on those pieces of information. As the House Senate report said, you know, the problem was that the important details were lost in the vast streams of information being collected. 
Well, the Patriot Act and other legislation, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act amendments, uh, you know, a number of different uh, provisions turned that vast stream into a raging river. And again, whenever we see a, a, a counterterrorism failure, again, what we find immediately is, oh, the FBI or the CIA or the NSA actually did have pertinent information that they hadn't put to use. And whether this is the underpants bomber who, you know, obviously his father had come to, to, to uh, the intelligence community and said, my son is a threat to your country, or, you know, more recently, David Headley, who was just now being prosecuted for his involvement in the Mumbai bombings. You know, a number of people had come forward and reported him to the FBI. Uh, and yet that information is being lost in these huge amount of information that's now being collected. And, and you know, Julian mentioned some of these numbers, but I, I'll just, you know, go over them again because, you know, part of the problem is these, you know, this isn't a bipartisan issue. You know, this should be something, and, and that's why, you know, I think it's so good to have this panel to talk about. You know, both administrations, Republican and Democrat, have, have uh, embraced these techniques. And, you know, just to look again at the numbers of, of the expanded use uh, of these Patriot Act authorities, national security letters, went up from 14,788 uh, in 2009 to 24,287 in 2010. In 2009, those letters focused on six, just over 6,000 U.S. persons. In 2010, it was 14,000 U.S. persons. Uh, the Section 215 authority almost quadrupled, went from 21 in 2009 uh, to 96 in 2010. FISA orders went up from 13,076 to 15,079. Sneak and peek warrants went up from 736 in 2008 to over to 1,150 in 2009. 2010 numbers aren't over again, aren't out yet. So. You know, again, we see this steep rise with literally no explanation. Um, and that's really one of the troubling things with the Patriot Act. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, here we are again looking at the Patriot Act. It seems like every couple of years it comes back up. But there's still very little that we know about how these authorities are actually being used. And as we're talking about ex extending them or, or perhaps even making them permanent, that should be something that scares all of us. You know, in 2006, when, when the, the Patriot Act uh, was first reauthorized, you know, the, the Congress did something very smart and said, well, let's take a look at some of these provisions. And they had the IG look at the national security letters in the Section 215 authority and, of course, uncovered widespread abuse. And yet that hasn't driven the reforms that are necessary to prevent that abuse. And... and you know, it opened a door to, to even broader abuse. I mean, one of the interesting things about the review of the national security letters is that they discovered this thing called exigent letters. And if you look in the Patriot Act, you won't find something called exigent letters. You know, but this is the kind of thing that happens within an intelligence agency when you give it unfettered authority. You know, you give them the power to write thousands of these national security letters, well, that soon becomes a burden. You know, I have to write up this entire letter and bring it over to the telephone company before I get numbers? How about if I just, you know, write it on a post-it note? Wouldn't that be easier? And I can write a letter that says, you know, it's an emergency, so please give me it now, and I'll get you the national security letter later. And that actually happened. And it, thousands of these exigent letters falsely claiming an emergency went out. And, and 
information was being collected, and of course there was no national security letter following up. And you know, we still don't have a, a, a clear picture of how broad this was, because when the IG wrote, wrote a separate report examining the abuse of this authority, uh, the FBI uh, came up with a novel legal approach, a novel legal interpretation of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act uh, that suggested they had the authority to claim this information without legal authority to get this information. And you know what provision of, of that act uh, they interpreted? Nobody does, because it's secret. It's the law that they are using to get information about people is secret, and their interpretation of it is secret. So, you know, again, we need to know a lot more about this program. You know, as Julian said, two, Section 215 orders went up from 21 in 2009 to 96 in 2010. Uh, Senators Feingold, Wyden, and Durbin, and, and Congressman uh, Conyers here in the House sent letters in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, uh, saying that they're, you know, because of their uh, Positions they, they knew about a particular way this authority was being used. And they said, sent these letters to justice saying, look, as, if we're going to talk about renewing this authority, you should explain how this authority is being used in a way that makes the small number meaningless, that this is actually used quite broadly, and you need to explain that to the American people so they can have a, a full public debate about these authorities. And yet that program remains secret. So we still don't know how the FBI is using these authorities. Um, and of course, we don't know how these authorities are being used together. Uh, one of the, the uh, uh, expansions of the FBI authority occurred at the end of the Bush administration when uh, the FBI's guidelines, so these are the internal rules that the FBI plays by, uh, under General Michael McKay in December of 2008, um, to remove any factual predicate. Uh, to justify an investigation. So think of that. The FBI does not have to have a factual basis for choosing who it will investigate. So again, when you talk about sort of how, how, it, how to effectively focus precious law enforcement resources on people who are actually doing harm, what you've done is taken away any guidelines whatsoever. And the results shouldn't have been surprising. Uh, Charlie Savage from the New York Times uh, wrote an article in March where uh, he'd gotten a hold of some of the numbers. Between December of 2008 and March of 2009, the FBI opened over 11,000 assessments. That's these investigations that don't require a factual predicate. Of them, 427 turned into predicated investigations. Yet, all those thousands of people who the FBI investigated in those initial assessments, that information is retained. So again, even though you've done nothing to give the FBI any reason to suspect you of wrongdoing, the FBI can collect information about you, put it in their databases, and retain it forever. And, you know, perhaps this expanded uh, activity by the FBI is why we're seeing uh, large increases in the number of Patriot Act authorities being used, because they've uh, taken away that, that factual predicate necessary to open an investigation. Um, you know, there are a, a number of different pieces of legislation, you know, and again, they're, they're, the, the resistance to the Patriot Act has always been bipartisan. Uh, our lobbyist, Michelle Richardson, <laughs> asked me to mention the SAFE Act uh, by Butch Otter um, uh, back in the day. Um, you know, 
is certainly the Justice Act, which has not been reintroduced, uh, is something that would do what, what Julian talks about, which is, you know, making sure that when the FBI uses these authorities, they, they focus it on people that they actually suspect of wrongdoing, so that their, their time and attention is spent on the right people. Um, and, and, of course, there's a Conyers-Leahy uh, bill that would uh, also be a good first step to, to getting some control over these authorities. Um, but, you know, really what we need to do is, is know much more about how these authorities are being used. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we're running out of time very quickly. And, uh, but I would hope that whatever gets passed, there are robust uh, methods for inquiring into how these authorities are being used, whose information is being collected, and what's happening with it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Uh, last but not least, we have David Richters. He's a legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute, where he concentrates on civil liberties, counterterrorism, and criminal justice. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he served in the United States Army as an infantry and special forces officer, including three tours in Afghanistan. He's been awarded an Army Commendation Medal with a V device for valorous action and two Bronze Star medals. Uh, needless to say, nobody at Cato picks on David very much. Uh, he was also selected for as one of the Center for New American Security's Next Generation National Security Leaders Program, uh, and he continues to serve uh, in the United States Army as a Reserve Judge Advocate. David? Thank you, Brennan, and uh, thank you uh, all for making it here today. Um, whenever we mention my uh, current service, I have to give a disclaimer. Anything I say here is pretty obviously not the view of the DOD or the Army. Uh, but I'm going to direct my comments primarily at the Tea Party Republicans today. Uh, I'm going to keep my remarks uh, shorter than Julian and Mike's, uh, the reason being I know that at the top of the hour a lot of you have to be somewhere. Uh, and so I want to get some, some back and forth with the panel and the audience and some time for questions, particularly uh, for those of you who will say my representative thinks that some of these Patriot Act provisions are unconstitutional uh, but is under a lot of uh, pressure to vote for their reauthorization. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, the existential threat of counterterrorism. Um, terrorism, contrary to what we've been told, is not an existential threat to our liberty. But our own counterterrorism efforts can be. That's not the conventional uh, wisdom in Washington. But it's true. And the death of Os Osama bin Laden is a significant milestone that should give us pause before we reauthorize some of these Patriot Act provisions. Uh, but for bin Laden and but for the attacks on September 11, 2001, the Patriot Act would not have been enacted, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Bin Laden's death underscores the failure of Al-Qaeda to achieve its impossible goal, or purported goal anyway, uh, establishing a global caliphate living under bin Laden's uh, nihilistic worldview. As soon as Al-Qaeda establishes a return address for American special operations personnel and our bombs, they will cease to exist. Uh, they themselves do not represent an existential threat but they can provoke us into sacrificing our blood, treasure, and liberties to the point that we no longer recognize the society that we set out to defend in the first place. So that's why the real existential threat is not terrorism, but the changes we've mandated in the name of counterterrorism that erode the character of the society that we seek to secure and safeguard. So prior to September 11, 2001, can you honestly imagine we would have federalized airport security and force children only eight years old, six years old, and most recently eight months old to go through an invasive pat-down? 
Uh, or we would spend over $34 billion in Homeland Security grants to localities with little correlation between the money spent and any assessment of a credible terrorist threat, or that, in fact, the Department of Homeland Security would even exist. Uh, an ill-conceived management nightmare that will soon have a $3.4 billion new headquarters in the hopes of saving $400 million over the next 30 years. Now, only in the federal government is that considered a good deal. So most importantly, though, can you imagine we'd have passed this legislation, such as some of the provisions of the Patriot Act, which compromised the basic guarantee of the Fourth Amendment? Uh, in a recent uh, DOJ FOIA release pursuant to an ACLU request, uh, the FBI was refreshing, refreshingly honest in admitting that its refusal to confirm what telecom companies were cooperating uh, with national security surveillance programs, these are under the 2008 uh, FISA Amendments Act, um, they were re refusing to release this information based on the fear uh, that the public knew the scope of what the government was doing and which companies were cooperating. These firms would lose customers as a result. In essence, the government said, we can't tell you because the details are so bad we'll make you angry. Right? So the time has come to reform the national security tools that we're using uh, to detect and defuse terrorist threats. I think this is especially important for members of the Tea Party, uh, a political movement that takes its namesake from an act of political sabotage against an overreaching executive. I find membership in anything named or resembling the Tea Party incompatible with a support for a policy that allows federal agents to, in essence, write their own warrants. This is one of the chief complaints of the founders, writs of assistance, or general warrants, was the power of, uh, of the, the agents of the Crown to go after essentially whatever they wanted to. Um, this is what... Uh, in 1761, Boston lawyer James Otis described as the, uh, the worst instrument of arbitrary power, the most destructive of Indi English liberty, and the fundamental principles of law that was ever found in an English law book. Uh, so it's, there's a serious disconnect. If you're at a political rally, you're carrying a Gadsden flag that has uh, a coiled snake that says, don't tread on me on it, and you want to vote for reauthorization of some of these provisions. Uh, simply incompatible. Um, so... As Julian and Mike have laid out today, the three provisions we're discussing, I think we have to under recognize, are really a sideshow relative to the national security letter authorities. Uh, and meaningful reform will eventually have to address the scope of NSLs. Um, Julian's policy analysis is excellent in this regard. It points out we can improve them in a number of ways, and, and I would hope that we could have a discussion after my comments on exactly what those, those ways might be. Um, we could have additional oversight in the form of... Uh, 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 judicial oversight parallel to the Section 215 procedures that we currently have, um, a return to pre-patriot standards, uh, even requiring a, a, an internal review by an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, and I hope that the staffers present will, will bounce some ideas off of Julian and Mike in this regard. Uh, and certainly the First Amendment concerns regarding the gag provisions uh, that come along with a national security letter have to be reformed, and we should, there should be a statute that parallels uh, the Doe versus Mukasey ruling um, and, and, frankly, even the proposals floating around right now to put a sunset provision uh, on national security letters would be something. But I think we, we would all be better off with a, a substantive procedural change uh, with regard to national security letters. Um, the Section 215 procedures, uh, while I mentioned them somewhat favorably relative to national security letters, should be reformed along the lines of the previously mentioned Justice Act. Uh, and once again, this is uh, the test require not just relevancy to an investigation, but uh, that the information would have to be one of three categories, either um, about an agent of a foreign power or someone in contact with that agent of foreign power uh, or uh, in, in relation to the activities of the suspected person or group. Now, this is not a high bar and is by no means unreasonable to require that. 
Uh, and, I, and I would echo Julian's comments and say that if Section 215 were tweaked correctly, um, then a permanent reauthorization of this provision would be part of a sensible compromise bill, I think. Um, on the other hand, I think John Doe warrants, uh, maybe not as bad as the national security letters, but something that comes dangerously close to a general warrant. Uh, and we shouldn't see representatives that came to Washington on promises of limited government voting for an extended reauthorization of this provision. Uh, a principled uh, advocacy for limited government does not uh, simply mean favoring low tax rates in opposition to Obamacare. It requires constraining the power of the executive to intrude into the lives of average citizens unless the Fourth Amendment thresholds of particularity and probable cause have been met. Uh, the John Doe warrants don't pass muster in this regard, uh, but as Julian said, I don't think it's a it's a significant move. There's there's a small tweak that would make these in line with traditional investigative tools. Uh, and finally, I'll spend three sentences on the lone wolf provision. The lone wolf provision is a solution in search of a problem and unnecessary because of other powers that allow investigators to address lone wolf scenarios. Second, the lone wolf provision has not been used since its inception. Third, Congress should let the lone wolf provision sunset expire. Um, so before we head to questions, I'll just close note that if the Tea Party is to live up to its namesake and be true to its principles or its espoused principles, members cannot simply kick the Patriot Act can down the road or refuse to alter the problematic provisions before Congress today. So with that, I think our remaining time, we've got about 12 minutes before the top of the hour, uh, is best spent with the interaction between the audience and the panel. Thank you.